from Kurtco Media. Someone could say, well, you talk about values all the time, what's going up, what's going down. That's more of a fun exercise engagement to kind of see what are people gravitating towards. I always fall back to buy what you love and you'll never regret it. That was the voice of Greg Stanley, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Welcome to my guest today, Greg Stanley. Greg, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I think that anyone who's into car podcasts may be familiar with yours. The Collector Car Podcast, the official podcast of RM Sotheby's, and of course, we know who they are. You're also a consultant to RM Sotheby's, so your tentacles go pretty deep into the collector car market. It is a real pleasure to have you here, and I want to talk about your show and talk about some of the cars in your life as we move into the conversation. Yeah, sure. And I love talking about cars. I'd probably talk about them a little bit too much. At least the podcast lets me have an outlet for it, right? Well, speaking of that outlet, why don't you tell us about your show, The Collector Car Podcast? How did it begin? I used to have a career podcast for children, educational podcast for children called Learn From Others. It's still out there. And ironically, I would put a car aspect of it into it at the end just for fun. And one of my guests asked me, it sounds like you're really passionate about cars. And I said, yeah, I am. He's like, if people would describe you in two words, what would it be? And I said, well, I would be the car guy. He's like, you should do a podcast about cars. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, you know, one plus one equals two. It took him to tell me that. And I thought, you know what? That's a great idea. So I started it up and I really wanted to dig into the data, dig into the numbers, dig into the values of the cars, see what the market trends are. Because as my day job, I have like 25 years of insights and analytical experience in the CPG world, consumer product good world. And I thought, well, what if I take that skill set and I apply them to the collector car world? And so I did. And I started interviewing the experts. I like to interview collectors, find out what drives them. If you see a guy that has 200 Porsches, you want to know, well, why are Porsches so special? And then I also want to have fun. I want to have a unique, fun, creative perspective on cars and kind of do it in a way that's never been seen before. So one of my episodes, I did the math to figure out which car is actually worth its weight in gold. Because you hear about that, oh, that car's worth its weight as gold. Well, which car is actually worth its weight in gold? So I did the math and I think there are only two cars that are worth their weight in gold, at least at the current exchange rates. It's a great outlet. I get to meet great people. I get to expand my knowledge. I get to listen to market trends and dig into the numbers. It kind of is everything I was doing anyways, but it gave me a forum to share it with others. That is fantastic. And boy, maybe I have to listen to the podcast to find out which of those two cars are worth their respective weights in gold. I'll give you one of them. It's the obvious one, Ferrari GTO. There we go. Only one of the most recently traded ones. There is one other that I'll reference in the podcast. I'll leave that to our listeners to check it out. I'm going to wonder whether or not it's a very, very lightweight car that has to be worth a fortune. Maybe that's a way to go. I like the way you're thinking but it's not what you would think. Okay, so it's probably a big old heavy Bugatti Type 57 something or other, but uh, that's okay too. I love it. Well, it sounds like you're having obviously an awful lot of fun both with the narrative and with some of the analytics, which is what fascinates me about your business. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit more about your podcast proper. Can you name some episodes for people to maybe tune into? In other words, if somebody said, uh, hey, I want to listen to three of this guy's episodes, give me three that would be a great way to kind of dip a toe into Collector Car Podcast series. Sure, and I 
don't want it to sound like it's all Porsche related because I like Porsches. I want to define myself as a Porsche guy, even though that's the only cool car I have right now. <laughs> we'll I, talk about I, that in a minute. If our listeners like listening to podcasts like Spike Ferriston's Car Radio, he does a great job, but it's not necessarily family friendly. So I was able to have him on as a guest. So it's Spike Ferriston's Ultimate Porsche Garage. So I got him to narrow his favorite Porsches down to 10, which he said couldn't be done. I had, again, another Porsche guy, but he was a good interview. Dan Davis of the Brumos Collection. That was a lot of fun. He's a nice guy. It's really a wonderful collection. Fascinating stuff, huh? One that just came out that we talked about prior to this call was... I launched the Collector Car Fantasy Football, and that was a lot of fun because basically it's four quote-unquote experts, including myself, picking, instead of picking 11 players for your fantasy football team with a salary cap, we picked 11 cars from 11 categories that we think we're going to appreciate over time for our ultimate collection with a million-dollar salary cap. And so I had a couple folks from Haggerty. I had Ramsey Potts, who's a car specialist with RM Sotheby's. And we really got into it because like fantasy football, if someone picked the car, you couldn't pick it for your pick. And so we had a lot of craziness going on. And that's a lot of fun because listeners can get involved. They can go to the collectorcarpodcast.com and download their own form and look up the rules and they can play along. If I get enough players, we'll have brackets where folks can win a prize at the end. So every time Haggerty updates their valuation tools, we will have another round of the collector car fantasy football. So that's a lot of fun. And it's a way to get people really engaged. I have to tell you, that was a great podcast because I just listened to it and I'm not a sports guy, but I am sorely tempted to jump into that mix. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And then another one I really like that is actually, it just posted this last week. It's Mine's posting tomorrow. So by the time this comes out, you'll see it. It's an interview with the guys from the Auto Car Club in Arizona. That's where we actually had our Arizona auction. And I would not only listen to my podcast because I had them both on and they were a lot of fun, but go to their podcast, which is called Fuel for thought. And we really dug into the numbers, the results from the Arizona auction, which was really nuts. There were some crazy numbers that occurred out there. One thing I will say as a precursor, the three cars that really shocked me what they went for, three of them were four-seaters. So think about that for a minute. They weren't two-seater sports cars. And two of the three were four doors. When you think of collector cars, you don't think four doors, first off. That's not supposed to be the case anymore. That train was supposed to have left the station about 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, so those are a few. I mean, I'll do stuff like the top 15 cars you need to buy now before they go stratospheric. I'll talk about the highest cars that sold in 2020. Um, I really like to dig into the market trends and kind of see what's happening out there. How many episodes have you got under your belt and how often do you come out? So it comes out every Thursday morning at 4 a.m. So if you're a gym rat and you're at the gym at five o'clock in the morning, you can listen. That was kind of the goal behind it. And it's every Thursday. And tomorrow, as we're recording this, I'm posting my 106th episode. Do you find that you have kind of a different perspective on cars after doing 100 of these conversations? I really do. It's amazing the cars that pique my interest now, whereas before they might not have. It's mostly related to the numbers. So as I dig into the numbers, something will usually stick out and I'll wonder about that car. I want to learn more about that car. A couple things that kind of stick out, like I've never really looked at Plymouth Cuda AARs, 1970. I think they're beautiful cars. I've always kind of liked They're them. sure pretty in those bright colors and all that. And that small block engine, it's just really a fun car. It's got the exhaust coming out before the rear wheels. You know, they came with a four-speed, high revving to compete with the Boss 302s. I love Boss 302s. I'm a Mustang Shelby guy. And that jumped on my radar because they're so soft right now. I think it's like a bargain of a century. 
I mean, they're down at like an eight-year low from a valuation perspective. And a lot of it was driven by the multi-million dollar Hemikuda convertibles taking a big hit at some auctions. They kind of cascaded down to the entry-level cars. So that really piques my interest. But then when we see a Mercedes wagon sell for $100,000 from 1990, that starts making me look into those segment of cars a little more that I never really cared about. But now it's kind of like, well, what are the future collectibles going to be? What are people buying now that they weren't buying even five years ago? I'd love to have you back on Cars That Matter to talk about some of the opportunities and absurdities of the collector car market, because we're seeing things happen that, man, I look at the sale of some of these early AMG cars and whatnot and think to myself, boy, that may be a very short-term buy, because when those things start to go south and parts break, it is going to be a whole different world of hurt for some of these owners. Now, that AAR Cuda, on the other hand, uh, to me, that's as good as gold, as you might say, because it was an important car, both in terms of competition in the day. It's uh, relatively light and sporting in the same way that a Boss 302 is. And frankly, let's not forget about the javelins. There was a lot of fun stuff happening back then. That was a real great era, huh? Yeah, I was actually visiting a client the other day and he had a lot of cars, but three cars in a row was all 1970 Plymouth cars. There was a AA Arcuda. Next to it was a 426 Hemi. Next to it was a 440 convertible. Very rare. And I asked him, of the three, which one is the best driver? And he immediately pointed to the AAR, which was a fifth of the price of the Cuda and probably a tenth of the price of the convertible. That's right. But it was a car that actually was made for a mission. And in the same way that the Superbirds and the Daytona 500s were pretty special cars. Big old monsters, but man, they were something. Talk about some of the work you're doing with Sotheby's and the collector car market proper. How do you get engaged? You're a consultant and obviously a serious market analyst. What would you say your main role is for that company and for the collector customers? I basically function as a car specialist, more as a consulting version. So a lot of it has to do with my podcast. As leads come through or people say, hey, you know, I listen to your podcast. I have these cars. Would you mind doing an appraisal? Would you mind taking a look at X, Y, and Z? How can I help? more than anything else. So as a consultant role, I've been asked to look at collections. I've been asked to go see individual cars. It's everything from give me your opinion to, hey, can you help me take this to auction? It's really across the gamut. It can function as a car specialist in a full-time role, but I just do it as a consulting gig. Great company, a lot of fun to work with, really knowledgeable, really smart car folks. If you think I know something about cars, you ought to talk to some of those guys because they really know stuff about cars. You clearly know something about cars, but it takes a village to raise a child. I guess it takes a village to restore a car. And certainly RM up in Canada has done some great work there. Rob Myers from way back with, boy, that salty old guy. He was loads of fun. I remember spending time with him at some of the auctions up in Monterey back in the uh, well over a decade ago when the landscape was a little different and before RM actually became a part of the Sotheby's family. Of course, Sotheby's now is just on fire. I mean, they're the 800-pound gorilla in the auction world and the one to beat. In fact, I noticed an interesting auctions coming up in Switzerland with a handful of late model Porsches. Of course, by the time this show's posted, it may be yesterday's news, but there's always something exciting coming up at Sotheby's. What's really interesting is when a car is consigned at RM Sotheby's, it doesn't just go to the car folks at RM Sotheby's. It goes to the larger Sotheby's world. So we can start seeing some folks that had never bought 
a 550 Porsche or whatever. They've only bought art or watches or jewelry or whatever. And they're transitioning into the car world because of the link and the connection. And they're realizing these are rolling pieces of art. Why look at a Picasso on the wall when you can drive a Ferrari down the street? That's a really interesting business model. And obviously we saw that come to full fruition with the recent sale of the Alpha Bats at the evening modern and contemporary sale. Truly those would be as much a work of art as any Constantine Brancusi or certainly any crushed Chamberlain sculpture. I think cars do belong in the fine art sphere. Certainly Sotheby's and their competitor Christie's are mixing contemporary painting with tribal sculpture and finding out that really there are a whole lot of new prospects in the collector car market, some of whom belong there and some, frankly, who might not. I know the Botticelli portrait that just sold a couple of days ago. There were guys in the audience bidding on that painting, which sold for $92 million, who didn't even know what a Botticelli was. But I guess their financial advisors told them it would be a good way to go. Let's talk about collector car investors. Should they just be ridden out of town on a rail or do they play a role? That is a tough one because I'm not a fan of investing cars. It's kind of funny I'm saying this because someone could say, well, you talk about values all the time, what's going up, what's going down. That's more of a fun exercise engagement to kind of see what are people gravitating towards. I always fall back to buy what you love and you'll never regret it. I don't like seeing cars being driven up in price because of the investor speculation. I did see a trend recently from Arizona that I think kind of speaks to that a little bit. Some of the instant collectibles like the 4GTs, the McLaren Fennas, where people would buy them for a million dollars and put no miles on them and sell them for $1.3 million. That seems to be slowing down. I think a large part of that is because there's so many of those cars on the market now. So where they might've been making 600 grand by flipping a car that was brand new, now they're making 200 grand. You know, it's still happening. That's right. But that's right. I said on my podcast, whenever you see a Ford GT with two miles on it, it's a shame because I would drive the heck out of that car. You know, I, I want to buy it for investment reasons. And so I don't like it. I understand why it goes on. I'm a driver of my cars. That's the main reason I have them. I would never buy one and you just put it away to hope that it appreciates. If I can't drive it, I want to sell it as soon as I get it. <laughs> I'm not a fan of it, but it is what happens. I do find it fascinating to see where the trends are going, which is why I talk about them on my podcast. And I like to say, you know what, when I say, here's the 15 cars you need to buy now, it's not as an investment perspective, it's buy them now while you can still afford them. It's interesting you talk about the investors. Sometimes the manufacturers themselves will put the kibosh on all that nonsense. I remember, I, boy, I, I wanted a 911R, the recent one, so badly. And of course, I wasn't high enough on any totem pole. I was well beneath the lowest rungs of them. I was subterranean totem pole wise. I had no shot of getting one of those cars. And guys were flipping those things for hundreds hundreds of thousand dollars over list. Well, the chickens came home to roost because now they're sitting on 911Rs and aren't worth a whole lot more than they paid for them, if that. And of course, Porsche pulled the carpet out from under and decided, we'll just make a GT3 Touring and you guys can all go screw yourselves. (laughs) And I just loved it. And I thought that was a brilliant move and it sort of put the wooden stake in the heart of the vampire that was trying to turn this from a hobby to a business. Now, I do want your perspective because when I interviewed you for my podcast and my key cash and crush game, I gave you a Jaguar continuation car and you immediately threw that thing in the crusher because you're not a fan of the continuation. First, tell me why you're not a fan of that. The reverse argument is that's a way to combat the investors because look at AC Cobra kit cars. I can afford an AC Cobra for 30 grand because there's so many of them out there. A million dollar continuation car is a lot different than a $16 million continuation car. I can't afford either. Give me your uh, thought process. Boy, that continuation car conversation is 
definitely a prickly one. For our listeners who may not be aware, a number of manufacturers, Jaguar, Bentley, Aston Martin, have over the last 10 years, and especially recently, accelerated the production of what they call these continuation cars. And clearly, for anywhere between a million and a half and three million dollars, they will produce a short run of cars that were originally made in the 50s or 60s based on real or imagined number of remaining VINs that could be assigned to them. And the whole idea is that if a fellow has a $15 million original in the garage, he might well spend a million and a half to be able to take that vintage racing and not sacrifice the precious original on the track. And it makes perfect sense, certainly for those with castles and estates in Europe. It's probably a rounding error. But I think that it does a bit of a disservice to the legitimate cars. To me, it's such an obvious revenue-generating scheme for these companies that probably need a little bit of a cash infusion. You don't see Porsche doing it. You don't see Mercedes-Benz doing it. You don't see BMW doing it. But unfortunately, a lot of our landed gentry in Britain who no longer can afford to keep their electricity and their castles on have to stoop to reproducing these cars at great expense to try and infuse the companies with some money. A continuation car that is perfectly legitimate to me, though, is some guy that wants a Shelby GT350, and he says, I'm going to spend 50 grand and make the best continuation car I can, and he does it in his garage. Or a guy who says, I'm going to build this kit Cobra because I've always wanted a Shelby Cobra, but can't afford the real deal, and I'm going to make one that's just as good as new. That's a different concept. I've rambled on, but boy, I feel strongly about this stuff. I actually agree with you. I think it's a different differentiation between the company doing it and charging a million plus dollars, or maybe another company doing it. I mean, Beck Spiders, they're well known. and Oh, they're wonderful little things, huh? Yeah. So it's a pretty interesting conversation to have and to figure out, you know, and also the big companies are getting into having their own classic division. They're realizing, wait, all these companies are restoring our cars. Why don't we restore them and use our parts and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the background of the collector car market for sure. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Greg Stanley. You talk about being a consultant, Greg. What is the weirdest and most exciting discovery you ever made? It's actually occurring right now, ironically. I don't know that it'll go anywhere with me, but I got a text message of a barn find Speedster, a 1955, I believe. It's a pre-A Speedster with its original engine. And when I say barn find, I mean, it looks like a bomb hit it. Everything's there, but man, I don't even think you can roll it out to get it into the sunlight the way it currently is. <laughs> Originally silver with red interior. Well, that's a perfect color combo, man. That's what you want. Yeah. And this is an interesting situation because what would you do with that car? I'm a little too OCD to imagine, quote unquote, preserving something that doesn't deserve to be preserved. I was challenged with the same set of questions when I got my Shelby. It was in a barn since 1972, perfectly original, but the paint was shot. There's no way to preserve the paint. What do you do with that? So there's a difference between an old old car that can be lovingly recommissioned and one that is just so sorry that it needs everything from paint to rubber to seals to any soft parts have to be replaced. This thing needs everything. 
but it is an original. I've been told I need to go see it, but it is an original matching number pre-A speedster in great colors. And so we'll see. I kind of doubt anything's going to happen with it, at least with me personally. Boy, that's an exciting find. Obviously, you get a chance to poke your head in some really exciting garages. But what got you there? What actually got you into cars, Greg? How do you start? Every guy has a story. Mine's kind of interesting, and I didn't really put it together for a long time. When I was a little kid, probably like three and four years old, my mom would draw pictures of cars. And I think that led to me, I like to draw. So I think it was twofold. It got me interested in drawing because I was like, well, how did how'd she do that? And then it also got me into cars. Even though they were like the automotive version of a stick figure, I just was super impressed. And then the main moment where I became a Mustang guy, when I was like 14 or 15, my dad's buddy came by the house and you can go online and see the picture of this car. It was a 66 Mustang convertible, looked like a GT, just a classic 66 Mustang convertible, white top, black interior, spinner. And I just fell in love with that car. I just thought it was the most beautiful car I'd ever seen. I offered to wash it so I could touch it. <laughs> and for some reason, I went out and I came back and the car was gone and I never saw it again. And so I think that just fueled because it was untouchable, unattainable. And from that moment on, I said, my first car I'm ever going to own is a Mustang. And so I scrounged up a thousand dollars and my cousin found one in the Southern part of Georgia. And he said, I found you a 68 Mustang for a thousand dollars. So I said, sold. And so I went up there to look at it. He didn't tell me it didn't have an engine. <laughs> wider detail, wider detail. He was a great guy. We found a straight six engine. We put it in the car. I had it for about a year and a half. I couldn't afford it. I ended up selling it. It's just continued on since then. There's been many gaps where I didn't have a cool car, like 10 years between Mustangs and another 10 years between the next few Mustangs. Well, the good news is that there will always be Mustangs around and they will always be one of the greatest cars ever made. Well, you're a uh, 65 Shelby's about my ultimate Mustang. So people say, what's the most fun old car to drive? And I got to tell you, I think that car, there's something magical about a 289 Ford V8. It's just no, no engine like that. I mean, just no engine like that. And uh, the car was, granted, it was a unibody piece of junk, but it sure had some sweet lines on it. Shelby and his team dialed in about as much as they could dial in. The car really uh, was a lot of fun to drive. I can't think of a car more fun than a mid-60s Mustang, whether it's a Shelby or a GT or whatever it happens to be. Those were really fantastic cars. Yeah. So I agree. And I would make the one caveat, if not a 66, I mean, 65, it would be one of those four 66 convertible GT3. Ah, there we go. I love That's right. <laughs> yeah, that convertible was really a sweet look. Ford was in the zone back then, you know, the mid 60s. They made some great cars, even the big galaxies and a whole era that was absolutely pure magic. Even if you get into the Thunderbirds and the Continentals, all kinds of great stuff. I saw a car you would appreciate this last weekend. It was a 63, I believe, Galaxy 427 convertible four speed. And in 1965, the guy put in a Shelby tack on the console. I love it. These discoveries are probably, to me, the most exciting part about the whole collector car scene is that you can find little subtle nuances that owners added to the cars, you know, whether it's a Hoyer racing stopwatch on the console or a Muntz 8-track tape player under the dash. <laughs> a lot of fun stuff that you could do to cars back then. For sure. I love seeing the accessories like the 8-track or something that takes you back in time when people sit in your car you're like, what is that? Especially young kids. Keeping young people engaged in the hobby is certainly a challenge. And as you know, being in the auction 
auction business and the valuation business, when cars get so expensive, it necessarily edges some people out of the market. Maybe now's a good time to ask you. You got a crystal ball, I'm sure. It's a lot more transparent than mine. Talk about some of the cars that should be on people's radar in 2021. I'm actually going to do a couple episodes focused just on these particular cars in certain respects. One episode I'm going to put together in a few weeks is analog supercars. And so picture early 2000s Porsche Carrera GT, Ferrari 550s, Lamborghini Diablos. The cars that were truly analog, that were manual transmission, typically V12 or V10 in the Carreras, those are really starting to appreciate. One example from Arizona, which kind of blew me away, it was a 2000 Ferrari 550, not a convertible, not the Barchetta, beautiful red stick shift, tan interior with 6,000 miles on it. Now, when you look those up in the price guys, they're $150,000 every year, everywhere. And this one went for, I think, 240. But it's a six-speed, and that was a great car. I had a chance to drive a 575 for about a week or two back in the mid-2000s. Always thought about the 550 and 575 as kind of like the Italian Camaro. What a great car that was, and really maybe the last of the Mohicans in terms of kind of the classic Ferrari GTs. Yeah, and another trend I noticed was the homologation cars. We had a collection of the Group B cars from the 80s and early 90s. And they also really strong. The Lancia Deltas, the BMW Evo 2s, the Mercedes 190s. That just talks to the generation that once those cars is now they're getting to have the disposable income to buy those cars. And it's like the AMG cars you talked about, those are up on the rise. Wagons are doing really well. My dad often talks about it's a shame Ford's getting rid of all the cars except for the Mustang. I'm like, well, they're just making sport huge that are really sleek looking and eventually they'll just be wagons. Exactly, <laughs> so exactly. I think the Mach-E is only three inches taller than the Mustang or something crazy like that. Wagons are pretty hot right now. It's just, you know, look at the folks that are coming into disposable income, the folks in their 40s. What was hot? when they were young, late 80s, early 90s. Like I said, the Diablos, the Countaches, Murciagos, all those you'll start seeing increasing. They've pretty much bottomed out and now they're going to continue to increase. I always tell anyone, if you can find an Asian car from the 70s or 80s, doesn't have to be a supercar. It could be a four-door wagon, four-door coupe with low mileage. That's going to be something that will appreciate. Any of the JDM cars will go up in price. There's a lot. Of, I think Dodge Vipers, first-generation Dodge Vipers, are finally going up and starting to hit their stride. There's a lot of stuff out there. Really, 2000 Audi Quattros, the TT Quattros. There's a lot of different things out there. You saw the rise in the Toyota FJs. Well, that's led to the Land Cruisers of the 1990s. So those are starting to appreciate. Boy, talk about a car you couldn't give away back in the age. And now, of course, it's you know it's the flavor du jour. So that's a lot of fun. A lot of things that aren't selling right now is. 40s and 50s. In early 60s, I think the muscle cars would continue to buck the trend because they're so usable, you know, in everyday traffic and everything. There were a couple outliers that really kind of blew me away. We had a, I think it was a 57 Cadillac Eldorado Brome. So rare car, four-door. <laughs> Boy, that's the most complicated restoration anybody will ever undertake. You're looking at a $40,000 chrome bill there. And one of those, like that's the car typically you wouldn't think would appreciate right now in the world of collector cars, but the estimate was eighty dollars to $120,000 and it sold for one sixty-five, dollars And it was just insane. And the other car, which I still don't understand, but you need to keep an eye on it, is the 2011 Tesla Roadster. Well, don't get me started with that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So people ask me at, at Elkhart, we had one, I think the estimate was 60 to 80 grand. It sold for 120. And in Arizona, we had an estimate of 90 to 110 and it sold for $100,000. And there's three reasons these things are going up in price. One is they're rare. 
Uh, four years, they only made about 2,400 of them. Two, it was a disruptor of the car industry. I mean, it was one of the first electric cars out there. And then number three is they were very low mileage. The one in Elkhart, I think, had 3,000 miles. So try to find that car out there, and you really can't, which is why it went to $120,000. <laughs> that is an amazing story, and Yes, indeed. Don't get me started. But I think it does prove that there are a lot of stones that aren't yet turned over in the collector car market. Certainly, you mentioned Japanese cars, and that is absolutely a fact. I mean, when was the last time you saw a 68 Toyota Corona? Probably maybe back in 1969. All these cars have gone to the crusher. They've rotted or rusted or long since been turned into you know a flower pot in somebody's backyard. So it's remarkable that any of them even exists at all. Heck, I even saw a Subaru 360 the other day for sale that, again, was a car that you couldn't give away 20 years ago. Well, a perfect example is a 1983 Isuzu iMark diesel. That was what I drove in high school. Slow as molasses. If someone got too close to me, I would just drop the clutch and big black smoke would come out of the rear and they would stop tailgating me. But my dad and I went camping up the East Coast from Florida to Maine in that car. We had a trailer behind it and I would love to have one. I mean, it's actually based on the Chevette, one of the worst cars ever made. But if I could ever find one, I would probably buy it. You know, they're worth about, they were worth about $1,500 or $900, whatever. But diesels are hot. It's the Japanese version of an American icon, for lack of a, in a bad way. (laughs) It's actually kind of good looking, but they just don't exist. I've had a Google alert for three years now, and I haven't seen one pop up. What a great hobby this is when you've got people that are going after some of the weirdest cars in the world. And amazingly, you know, they used to be so ubiquitous. I mean, thinking about growing up in Southern California, the Ford Pintos and Chevy Vegas, I mean, they were everywhere. And of course, you know, they're virtually as rare as hen's teeth these days. So yeah, the collection I mentioned, they had those three Hemis. He also had one of the very few Yugo convertibles. So how do those fit in the same collection? That may be a one of one. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Well, I know there are some cars that are a whole lot more popular, Greg, and you alluded to one because you admitted as much. You said you're a Porsche enthusiast. So let's talk about your favorite cars. Well, it has to start with the Mustang and Shelby's, obviously. I sold my 66 Mustang convertible. It was an A-code, four-barrel, four-speed, limited slip, you know, had a lot of bells and whistles, total body, bare metal repaint, loved the car. But after five years, I wanted to try something different. And I wanted to try what I would call the opposite of a 66 Mustang. And that was a 99, 911. Okay. <laughs> so I stuck my toe in the deep water of 911s with what most folks would call the ugliest version. I had a 99, 911. So you're preaching to the choir. Yeah. And it was the last like direct throttle one or something. And they have the fried egg headlights, which I like to call my $15,000 discount. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm loving the 911 right now, but I would love to have a nice 53 Buick Skylark, just such a big, beautiful convertible. I've always loved the 63 Impalas. My uncle has one I've been drooling over since I was a little kid. I love the C2 Corvettes. Uh, the 67 Vet is 
one of my favorite of all time. One car that's on my list is a Hypo Mustang. I just love that K-Code Hypo engine, whether it's a coupe convertible or whatever. Love to have a Shelby. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. I'd love to experience some type of exotic Italian car. The first supercar I ever saw in person was in 1986 at the Racket Power in Jacksonville, Florida. It had to be a Testarossa. No, white Countach. Ah, okay. With white interior and it had the aftermarket wing on the front nose. Yeah, boy, that was quite something, wasn't it? That was like a spaceship. I was looking at a spaceship in the parking lot. That was the first one I saw ever. And I've seen one like it before at the Pittsburgh Historic Races. And there's a million cars on my list. I only have one spot in my garage. I can't convince myself to sell the 911 right now because I fixed the IMS bearing. It's got a new clutch. It's got new coil. You know, it's a great driver. That's too good a car to get rid of because I agree. It was a remarkable advancement for Porsche, even though they're much maligned. I think that in and of itself is a car that's going to be certainly coming back into the collector consciousness because people realize how good they are. You can't hardly touch the turbo versions for less than 60 grand now. That's right. I always ask our guests, any three cars in your personal collection, if some genie came out of a bottle, said, I got a brand new three car, temperature controlled three car garage with a full rolling snap on tool chest and car covers for any three cars you want, you can have any three. What would they be? It's funny you say this because I just figured out my top three cars, attainable three cars. So I'm not going to pick like a Ferrari F40 because that would be in there. I'm going to make it the attainable list. Is that okay? You know what? I like a guy who's down to earth. As Clint Eastwood said in one of the Dirty Harry movies, a man's got to know his limitations. (laughs) (laughs) So it's attainable, definitely aspirational, okay? So one of them would be a 66 Shelby GT350 Hertz car, one of the first 81s that had the stick shift. I love all 66 Shelby GT350s. I just think the Hertz cars are kind of cool, but I want one of the stick shift cars. Those were rare. And of course, black and gold. Black and gold. Uh, The 53 Buick Skylark, preferably white with red interior, probably. Or one of those cool 50s colors, you know? Yeah. And then the third car would have to be a 911, narrowing it down. I might go with an 87 turbo look, non-turbo car. So it's a little more drivable. Interesting choice. Yeah. Got the flares in the spoiler. Weren't many of those. Actually, you know what? Let me take that back. I'm going to pick that new 911R. That thing is just gorgeous. I love those 911Rs. Well, you know what? You're not going to get any argument from me at all. What a great garage. I got to tell you, this has been a great conversation, Greg. Tell our listeners how they can become familiar with the Collector Car Podcast. Where do they go? How do they get it? They can pretty much go anywhere. Anywhere you have, you find podcasts, you'll be able to find it. Just a, the Collector Car Podcast. It does have the word the in it. You can go to thecollectorcarpodcast.com and check it out. Most episodes will be in RM Sotheby's email blast at least once a week. So be sure to subscribe to RM Sotheby's. They have great content pretty much every day of the week. You can go to Instagram and Facebook and look up the Collector Car Podcast. We will have live streaming events coming up soon. I have Mikhail Haggerty. He's going to tell me his ultimate garage on February the 22nd live streaming. So he has 10 spots. He has to pick 10 cars. The president of RM Sotheby's, Kenneth Ahn, will be quote unquote, second guessing his choices. We'll see what he has to say about Mikhail's choices. And then in March, I will have Wayne Carini on again, live streaming and the podcast audio only will release the following Thursday. So a lot of fun stuff coming up. I also offer, I call it your cars, your podcast where listeners can submit their cool cars to me and I will do a appraisal of it on air. Now I have to limit it to like the first 10 cars or so, but it's a fun way for me to get to know the listeners a little bit more, to review their cars based on the information they give me, give them a value and then share it. And that's going to occur in April. The last episode was great. I had a guy that submitted a 
the best, most perfect Saab Sonnet. Isn't that great? And right next to it was a BMW Z8. So I had to do both of those cars. And so it was really interesting seeing what the listeners will submit and have me review. So people can submit their cars to me at Greg at the Collector Car Podcast or G Stanley at rmsouthofbees.com. Greg, you are one busy guy and I definitely want to get you back on the show because there is a lot to talk about and love to be able to pick your brain about what's coming up in the collector car arena in 2021. Anytime. I'm here. Thanks to Greg Stanley, host of the Collector Car Podcast, the official podcast for RM Sotheby's, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Edited by Chris Porter. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.